have a great idea for an app, but don't know how to code and don't have the money to go hire a software developer, no problem. In today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast, we'll be talking about no code and low code software development tools and how you can build apps and software products without knowing or learning how to code. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. My guest today is Mike Williams, the founder of Build Lab, which is a company that focuses on building software products through no-code and low-code tools for their clients. A lot of times it's automations, workflow processes, expediting processes, and even building things from the ground up. We talk about all of the tools that Mike uses in his business and what you should consider and why no-code and low-code software development is the future of software development. If you haven't already, go ahead and pound that subscribe button so you get notified when new episodes of the Silicon Alley podcast air every Friday. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's no-code, low-code focused episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Mike Williams. Mike, welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, so I'm excited to dive in on a couple things. Your experience in the uh, no-code, low-code space is really interesting to me. I built an app using low-code and no-code. I'm not an engineer, so I definitely want to dive into that. But I'm curious, how did you come across the no-code, low-code space? Yeah, it started when when I was like 25. I ended up like starting a few small little businesses with some buddies from school. Before that, I was with Accenture and, and doing consulting and um, always wanted to do my own thing, even if it wasn't some big like unicorn or whatever. I always just wanted to be self-employed. So had these like kind of small businesses running in the like event ticket space. They were really like data heavy and, uh, you know, we didn't have a big team or budget. So I just ended up like trying to automate things like accounting, just, just making sure like data and sales and stuff got into the right place. I had an Excel file that I used for a long time that I just like logged everything in and it was getting super bogged down and like took 30 seconds to open. So I was like, all right, I need to figure something else out. And then I kind of got into like Airtable and like Integramat and Zapier and some of those tools. I was always pretty technical. I wasn't like a a full-blown dev, which I've recently gotten into dev as well. But initially I just needed to, to, I didn't want to like learn to code straight ups, but I wanted to like automate these things. So I just kind of went down that little rabbit hole. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And yeah, wanting to having that problem yourself, right. Trying to, trying to make sure that you track everything with a small team, having limited resources and figuring out how can you create systems and processes that'll scale, take time, will take, allow you to focus your time on the things that are important versus just, you know, making sure you're tracking the right data. You, you dove into it, started to come across these tools. How did you realize that automation would actually improve the business and impact it? Like, what was that first experience like as you started using these tools? What was cool for me at the time, and I think what a lot of what's a common use case for a lot of people was that just that I could like string together all the different services I was using. You know, I had like a point of sale and then I had like accounting I was doing in, I think, like QuickBooks and, you know, I had Excel and I had a to do list. Like I was using Todoist at the time and Slack. And at one point I had like a VA that I liked, I wanted to like, give tasks to for some of the uh, tedious stuff. Once I kind of realized, like when I found Zapier and kind of started tooling with it, I realized like I could string all these things together because they all have public APIs. Like that's what Zapier and Integramat and and those services, they just like wrap the API. Public APIs are really common these days. I think that's why like Zapier is getting so popular. But yeah, once I realized like, whoa, you know, when a 
a sale comes in or like a support ticket comes in, you know, I can like funnel this right to Todoist and like assign it to a VA if I want. You know, if a sale comes in, I can have it go right to accounting and just being able to connect everything was cool. The one like bottleneck I had, I had this partner for like, I was doing sales through this point of sale system and they actually didn't, didn't have an API. It was super annoying because I couldn't plug in. They were kind of holding everything up. I ended up using like Zapier's email parser because I had these confirmation emails. That was all I had. And so I ended up like scraping emails and getting them into Airtable where I could do like way more of them. That's cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. So this, yeah, this need that, that developed and seeing how it could actually impact the business. So Mike, what actually led you to start Build Labs? You kind of mentioned that you had this inkling that you wanted to start your own, your own company. So what was that process like? Yeah, I kind of accidentally fell in a build lab. I'd been doing the no code, low code thing for like five, six years, was kind of, was kind of like maxed out on the, the businesses I was working on at the time. I'd kind of like automated every, all the low hanging fruit. There wasn't like that much to do. I kind of felt like pretty stagnant and then kind of thought about like what I was uniquely skilled at at the time. If I wanted to try something different, you know, I just, I didn't want, just want to chase some industry. So I was like, you know, what am I kind of uniquely? And I was like, well, I've been playing with these tools for a while since when they were really new. I mean, like Airtable at one point. I mean, I remember when they were not a lot of people knew about them and Zapier even. So I was like, okay, there's not that many people doing this stuff. I actually started like freelancing just to, just to test the waters. And I didn't really know what to put, but I, I was just like, whatever, I'll just put what I'm good at and see if people want to hire me. Cause like, I didn't know what to call myself, like a developer, or a product manager, or whatever. And I was kind of like the demand ended up being like stronger than I thought. I really was just kind of trying to do it on the side with no plans to like start a studio or anything, but you know, demand just kept taking off. Like hourly rate just kept going up. I think there was just such a small pool. You know, if you go on Upwork and look for a developer, there's a million like developers from 20 to hundred bucks. You really like have your pick, but people looking for like Integromat experts, there's a really small number of those. And the value to a business is huge if you can automate all this stuff. And I think people are just starting to kind of figure this stuff out, like how valuable automating your business can be and how few like real experts there are at it. So eventually just kind of decide to like take the next step and, you know, start hiring and like delegating a little more and starting more of like a studio. And we do custom code as well. So we, we can talk about this if you want as well, but I ended up learning to code because I started growing out of a lot of no-code tools and I've been doing that for like a few years now. And, and we, we build custom apps and like web and mobile and stuff like that. And we build really lean there. We use like serverless tech and try to build with kind of the no-code ethos of like building really lean, don't use more than you have to. That's kind of a, a, cool, a cool trajectory when you can realize that these skills that you've been developing over five or six years are marketable and your, your side hustle actually turns into a, uh, a full-blown studio and business. You mentioned a term that I want to dive into a little bit. So I've talked about no-code and low-code on, on this podcast before, but essentially it's you know software tools where you don't have to know how to code in order to build products or to, in like Zapier, Airtable's case, connect different systems. So connecting you know Google Sheets to your email, all these different kind of things that you can do with low code and no code tools. But you mentioned serverless development. Can you talk a little bit about what serverless development is? Yeah, it's kind of a loaded word and I might like trigger some people. I've seen people on Twitter, like get triggered by the, the word. I, I really don't care what you call it. It's 
some people say like serverless and there's Jamstack. There's kind of like a lot of tools around kind of the same concept of like what I would describe it as is just kind of like there's a lot of these kind of backend as a service tools popping up where like Firebase is one we use more than anything. So like serverless in that regard, obviously it's still running on servers, like it's on Google servers, but the difference is, you know, rather than building an app and then spinning up some server on DigitalOcean that I have to manage and like plug into a database there, you can just use some of these libraries like Firebase and really focus on like building the product itself and have a lot of that like kind of backend boilerplate taken care of for you. So like when we push to GitHub, that just gets deployed to Firebase and our database is there, our auth is there, file storage is there. It's it's kind of this like backend as a service. So again, I mean, it's running on like serverless might not be the best word for it. That's the one I hear like a lot. So that's just what I use. But yeah, it's more about just abstracting a lot of this boilerplate that people used to have to do. Like Netlify is a big, really popular for websites now. And what's cool about them is you just push to GitHub and like, that's it. They deploy your site, they update it. It, within five minutes, it's pushed. It has like an SSL cert. You know, a lot of stuff you would have to do back in the day that was kind of annoying, didn't really help improve the product. It was just setting up an SSL cert. You know, a lot of that stuff is gradually getting abstracted away and, you know, building apps is is becoming a lot like quicker and leaner. So, and I, I really like to leverage that stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree. I think it's becoming a lot, <laughs> a lot easier to build products and services that where before you had to learn how to code or know how to do, or have someone on the team that did that also knew how to manage, you know, backend infrastructure. And there's all these different pieces that now, thanks to no code serverless architecture, you can actually deploy products a lot, a lot quicker. I'm curious, Mike, in terms of some of the first customers and the, the people that you serve, can you give some examples of like products, companies, services that you've worked that you've worked on, and what types of things you can build with uh, no code, low code, serverless architecture. Yeah, in our case, a lot of times, like the no code, low code stuff will kind of be like a project will be either or. They're kind of two st- sides to the business. So when we're doing serverless, that's generally we're building like a custom app, and then the no code, low code stuff we're generally doing automation. There's some. Some clients we end up doing both for, which, which is kind of fun. So, I mean, I'll just speak like generally, but the clients kind of range, but there'll be like startups, like kind of like well-funded, but still scrappy startups that like maybe don't have a huge dev team yet. They have some technical resources. You know, those are kind of always a good fit. And we work with those currently both as like doing contract work, but I also kind of do some like consulting and like fractional CTO stuff for a few like kind of promising startups, but again, still small, still scrappy. They're not at the point where they can just hire for every single role they need. So that's a, that's a good one. Just like small, medium-sized businesses. Again, some people might need an application. Others need more automation. So like e-commerce, we were, that's a common one. We work with a few people who like, they might sell a bunch of stuff on Shopify and Amazon and eBay and they want to like centralize sales data, you know, sync up inventory. Like maybe if they sell something here, they want to take it off or decrement the inventory here. They really vary a lot though. Like I don't have, people ask me like, who's your typical client? It's pretty hard for me to answer. Cause like I have one client that's just a local butcher down the street and they 
hit me up during COVID to help do this like curbside order system. So it could be something like that. And we've worked with like big, like enterprise companies who, you know, we were a much smaller fish there. Like they had their whole dev team, but just wanted to do like some no code stuff on the side. So it, it can really run all over the place. And, and in terms of like what the client looks like and what they're doing. That makes sense. So what are the the pros and cons of using, and, and we can differentiate that serverless and then low code, no code. Can you talk a little bit about like, what are some of the benefits, the downsides and things that someone should think about if they're exploring using these tools and technologies? We definitely work with both sides enough that I think I have a pretty like new, uh, nuanced view on this. There are people online who like are all one or the other, you know, devs who think no code's stupid and like no code people who think like devs, you know, no one's going to be writing code in five years. I'm definitely like, I see strengths in both of them. I mean, no code for one, it's just like quick to get going. These days, there's so many, the barriers to entry to start a business are lower than ever. And a lot of people might just want to like throw something out there to test the market. You know, you might not want to spend like 50K on a custom app to do that. So maybe you can string together like Webflow or Bubble. I, you mentioned you tried to build a tool. What, what did you use? Or you built uh, app, a tool? AppGyver. Are you familiar with AppGyver? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm aware of them. I, there's a lot of those front-end guys who are trying to like jostle their way into, that's kind of one of the more dynamic spaces right now is like the app dev side. Like with websites, for example, while we're talking about tools, you know, Webflow makes it just super easy for you to get like a beautiful site. They have all these nice templates and, you know, you don't have to write HTML. You can, if you want, but so just getting up and running quick is good. It's good for maintainability too. Like some of the automations we put in that we do an integromat as opposed to like cloud functions running with custom code is if something goes wrong, like integromat already has error handling built in, like we're going to get notified if something goes down. Whereas like a custom server, if that goes down, you might not know for days. You might just like try to do something and be like, oh, wait, that stuff is is really useful. It does help like one of the benefits for us because people are still paying us to do, you know, stuff for them. But one of the benefits between us like implementing something with Integromat and implementing something with code is the client, if they need to tweak some little thing, chances are they might be able to do it themselves like down the line, you know, if we're have like left the engagement or something like that versus, you know, if you don't know how to code, even if you want to change like the simplest thing, like a title of your website, you know, you might not know how to deploy it. Even if you knew how to change the HTML, like it's like, well, how do we push the update? Yeah. There's that on the no code, low code end, just maintainability, you know, quick to spin up. I think on the code side, like scalability and customization are the two big ones. Tools like Zapier and Integromat charge by the task. You know, Airtable has a like 50K record limit. With code, you know, if we're building something custom, we don't have that problem. We can store millions of records. We can run millions of tasks a day. They're super cheap on like Firebase and Lambda now. And like Supabase is another kind of backend as a service tool. So definitely more scalable, whether you're using serverless or like you have a server instead of an API on it. So there's that. And the other end is the customization. So you mentioned like AppGyver and, you know, there's so many no-code app like players right now trying to yeah. start up. You know, there's like Bubble's been around, I think the longest, but there's a lot of guys like jostling there. And the one thing we found is, is like with the front-end platforms, it's like each of them have, it's like pros and cons. And it's kind of frustrating because we're like, well, this one can do this, but this one can't, you know, and with... On the front end side, we definitely reach for code a lot more right now, just because we have 
UI frameworks. Like we use Tailwind CSS, which is this like powerful CSS framework. And we have like UIs around that. So we can still build pretty quick on the front end with custom. And uh, sometimes we'll wire that up to like maybe a low code or a no code backend. Even like a client might have an air table to use as the data source. So we kind of mix and match them, but that's the big thing is we can build exactly what we want on the front end. So the, the c- customization like side of things, Yeah. when you're using a platform, it can be kind of frustrating. Like if they don't have that thing, they do a lot of stuff for you, which is nice. But like if the second you get to something that's like not really built into the platform, it's like, oh man, like, how do we do this? So that was, yeah, that, that was our experience for sure. <laughs> Building. Like, I think when I first looked at when I first heard about no code, low code, it was still more for like developers to develop quicker or to like, you know, more focused on enterprise. And then when we started looking at potential solutions, like there were some players that had, that were mainly mobile. So we needed to build a mobile app, like based on our user testing, everything that we did, like it had to be a mobile app, couldn't be a web, a web version. Mm-hmm. So that ruled out like bubble, which doesn't really have native notification system for push notifications. Um, at least at the time that might've changed. I know they raised a big investment round. Like yeah, at the beginning yeah, of the year. Recently. Yeah. yeah. And so that was kind of like the limiting factor is that like, you know, there were some tools that had really great UIs, but they didn't do what we needed to do and ended up on AppGyver just simply because I could manually do the logic, right? They allow you to actually visually drag and drop the logic when the front end logic, which I thought was unique compared to, to other tools that I had seen. But you're right. There's limitations because there's only certain types of swipes and nav bars and things like that that you can do. So we were limited in terms of the experience that we could create. But what it did allow us to do was was build out and prove out kind of the first version, the first MVP, so to speak, of the platform. Um, but at the same time, we still had to learn how to connect APIs using Firebase. So we still used Firebase as a backend, Airtable to push content through the app dynamically. So like there's still all these other tools that you had to like rig up in order to, to make things work. So it makes sense why you would focus on the front end in terms of, of, of being able to do some of that custom stuff and use low code, no code on the database backend side. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to like bash any of these app platforms. I, I think that's a probably a very hard product to build like these, uh, you know, bubbles and app givers. And you mentioned, you know, there's some mobile ones like Adalo, Glide and Dalo. Like- yeah. And there's like draft bit, which that one's a little more custom. Like that one, I think you can export the custom code oh, if cool. you want, like it's built, it like builds react components. So there's some that are kind of like, give you a lot more control than others. Whereas like bubble really abstracts stuff for, uh, for you, which again, has like pros and cons. So I'm not really trying to knock any, any of them. I, I imagine they're working like super hard and that's a very hard problem to solve. But yeah, there is just, you know, when you're using a platform, there's just always that risk that like, unless they let you like open up the guts of it and put whatever React code you want in there. Like, I think some of them do kind of do that. But other than that, if you either have to build out every single possible thing someone could want, which is pretty much impossible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or you just have to do like the best you can to get that 90, 95%, right? But there are always going to be those kind of challenges there with like platforms. I was going to say, what are you most excited about in the space? I know you said that you're not kind of on one end or the other that, you know, we're back in no code is, is bad or, you know, all custom coding is going to be done in five years. So what are your thoughts on the space and like things that you're excited about right now? Yeah, in general, I've kind of already hinted at this, but I just like anything that lets you build quicker and do less boilerplate stuff, both on the no code side and custom. And that was really born just out of like me ultimately being trying to be lazy in like a good way, be lazy. Like 
if I can build this app in 50 dev hours instead of 200, because I don't, I'm not like messing with Apache config, you know, I, I'm just like all about that. So, and dealing with clients is a really great way to like, just see a lot of different real life business problems. And you realize, you know, there's not ever like one solution. You know, I wish we could have just a plug and play solution that I could just charge clients for. And it would like every single client that comes in, we can just tweak it a little bit, but with uh, a lot of the no code stuff, that's just like not the case. So yeah, I'm just really interested in that middle ground of like code and no code and seeing some of these tools get a little more like there's kind of plugins for no code tools that let you do some code. Like there's some companies that make money doing like Webflow add-ons and stuff like that. And, you know, as someone who can do custom dev, I, I'm really like attracted to that and eventually would like to get into more into the product side a little bit. But for now, you know, we're getting client problems is a good way to like see where some like gaps are in the market. But yeah, to come back around and answer, I mean, I'm excited about a lot of the stuff like these app frameworks on the custom side. I really like those. I mean, we use this front end framework Svelte that's like super lean version of React and Vue. There's uh, just all these things like Next.js and Vercel that allow you to deploy a web app in like a minute and a half. Just cool stuff like that, you know? I'm more recent to the dev game, so thankfully I haven't worked with all these like, you know, didn't have to work with some of these more like tedious frameworks that have been like replaced over the years. So yeah, I kind of just, anything that helps me build quicker and less tedious, I'm all about it. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense, Mike. So in terms of if someone was starting out, whether, whether they're building a product from scratch or maybe they're a business that hasn't deployed any automation, where should they start thinking about using some of these different tools? Like where would you recommend someone starts? Just like tool-wise or... Just the approach, Maybe I think, or... you know, I think that, like, as you said, there's so many tools out there, but like, how do I figure out which tools are right? <laughs> Should I even be doing this? Yeah. Like more so like the decision to build and kind of a process versus, you know, specific stacks. One thing that, you know, there are a million tools, especially like we talk about front end. I mean, the one thing that I think is pretty core to any business, like really trying to do bump up their tech and like automation side of things is you generally are going to want an automation platform somewhere in there to like glue everything together. So I mentioned like Zapier and Integromat, those are the two big ones. Mm -hmm. So like often, even if you're doing some front end thing, or maybe you don't have an app, but you're using Airtable, you know, oftentimes you might want to do some stuff more custom or like sync data back and forth, which Airtable's added a bunch of automation stuff now. So some of the stuff we used to do and have to do in Integromat has been like, you can do a straight and air table now, but I would say like, those are kind of the two tools to maybe start looking at. Like, cause like Zapier and Tegramat, you can put anything in there. So just whatever your business uses, if you use HubSpot for CRM and like Shopify, you're doing e-commerce, you know, you can probably start tinkering around and figure out how to string them together. Cause there's not really a limit there between how you put those tools together. And on the front end, kind of like data side, you know, I mentioned Airtable, like if you just want like a cloud-based kind of data source and you don't want to spin up a whole SQL DB, you know, Airtable, I, I try to push a lot of clients off of sheets into there. It's just a little more robust. It does like relational data. So it kind of starts you thinking about kind of in a database-y way as opposed to, you know, just cells all over the page. So yeah, th those were the tools I started with. And I think those kind of take care of the two main pieces, which is maybe like a front end or a data source, and then the automation back end. That's probably a good place to start. You know, if you're building a website, there's like 
Webflow, pretty much the winner there right now in terms of no code. The apps, that's a whole different story. There's like a million of those, but yeah, those are kind of the ones I'd throw out for a starter kit. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that's helpful and gives people ideas of, of where to where to start. I guess in, in terms of Build Lab and thinking about where you'd like to see the business, you mentioned that right now you're seeing a lot of client problems and you'd like to get more into the product side. Is that ultimately where you see the business going long-term is developing a product that you know fits somewhere in this space? Yeah, I think like deep down, I'm, a, I'm really a product guy. Like I love, like it's harder to do that right out the gate, you know, and it's definitely riskier. It's the kind of thing you might, it's kind of a, a very different ball game than like agency studio work where you're getting paid like a lot more steadily, although you're kind of capped a little more, right? Like as opposed to a SaaS is like almost infinitely scalable. But right now I'm kind of keeping a lot of doors open. Like I'm not necessarily just trying to scale to like the biggest agency I can. The studio side of things is a great way to, like I said, to see problems, just have cash flow, like working higher and learn about all that and like working with devs. So I'm always like trying to learn stuff like no matter which direction I'm going, if, if I'm learning, I'm kind of like, I think it'll work out in the end. Yeah. Product. I am involved as like not contract work, but as like a partner, like I mentioned, um, and CTO with a couple projects that are probably launching soon. So I'm kind of doing some of that stuff on the side. I try to keep like some bandwidth open for that. Yeah. Eventually I definitely have a million ideas. Like I've seen kind of some gaps in the market of where like maybe a product could step in there to like bridge that low code, no code kind of gap yeah. that I talked about earlier. But yeah, would definitely kind of like to start working in like kind of an 80-20 where like we keep kind of 20% of the time open for more like free project-y kind of stuff, like messing around. That's something I'm definitely working towards. No, it makes a lot of sense. And so just to make sure that I understand the business model as well, you mentioned that you've got the agency and then also the studio. So are those two separate kind of offerings? Sorry, I just use those words interchangeably. interchangeably. Okay, I, I, I like, want to clarify. I like saying studio. I mean, we're we're still smaller and agency like has kind of a connotation with it. So I, I use the word like studio might be more appropriate. Cool. Yeah, no worries. I just wanted to clarify. I wasn't sure if it was like you're bringing in like companies or startups and they're kind of like learning or that was what the studio said. So yeah, that no, just no, want to make sure. Not, not yet. Cool. So how do you define success for yourself? Like if you think about what success looks like, so maybe it's the, this product down the line, like what is, what does success look like to you? Yeah. Success in terms of, well, having yeah, on the work end of things, yeah, having some products, like having some more passive income, that's something that's obviously very attractive, I think, to everyone, not just me. But again, building products is something like I really like to do. So yeah, that on the work side, I definitely want to keep going in that direction. Again, right now, I'm just trying to stay a little more flexible, open to opportunities and like just trying to learn as much as possible. And then like really zero in on something when I think I see it. But in terms of like lifestyle too, being able to be like free to take a day off and like kind of have some balance there is not, is something it's easier said than done, but that's always important to me as well. You know, like I said, I, I like being open and splitting between like contract work and, and also like equity and, and, you know, skin in the game work like I'm doing now. My goal is not like I mentioned earlier to just, oh, I need, I want to build like a hundred person agency. Honestly, that sounds super stressful. <laughs> contract work is like way different than what I had done with my other businesses where it was really, I didn't have any like public facing stuff there. You know, that someone's business is on the line, like it's high stress. 
So keeping my calendar open while continuing to grow, that's kind of like a challenge, but it's, that's important to me as well as just to uh, keep my sanity a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, sanity is definitely an important, uh, important uh, thing to strive for, right? Making sure that you're, uh, that you're set, you're able to do the things that you want to do. I'm curious, in terms of some of the, the projects that aren't direct, directly related to agency, are you able to talk about some of those or at least the areas that they're in? Yeah. So this is the biggest one by far. And we're about to launch. I'm not going to talk specifics quite yet, just because really it's like this month we're launching. It's not top secret or anything, but that's kind of in a like marketplace-y space. It's for like, kind of like a job website. It's akin to like freelancers. It's kind of a freelance marketplace, I guess is the best way. Kind of like a Fiverr and Upwork type. Yeah, yeah. Upwork is probably the most similar. It's it's for a, like a real specific vertical. It's actually overseas in the UK. Oh, cool. And that should be that one I'm definitely excited about. Like it's it's a pretty full featured app. You know, there's payments going back and forth. Like we have Stripe, you know, not only collecting payments, but paying out with like their Connect product, which I, I work a ton with that with clients, by the way. So yeah, that's kind of exciting. There's another one that's like a little smaller. It's not really taking a bunch of my time, but it's it's going to be this Chrome extension thing that's we're just kind of throwing it out there and uh, see how it does. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I'm forgetting anything else. I think that's it for now. The the two main ones that are like getting ready to launch, but I I have some other stuff cooking. Yeah, that's exciting. And there it sounds like they're all different different kind of types of systems. A marketplace. You've got a Chrome extension. You know, you kind of dabble in, in a bunch of different areas in terms of the type of product, whether it's web, mobile, an extension, things like that. So that's that's cool that you're able to you're able to work on a number of different types of projects. Yeah, I'm definitely getting more confident there too. Cause like when I first started out, I was just as enthusiastic about like I'd love to put a product out there. But I mean, I really had no idea. I was just like, where do you even start? Right. Like I didn't really have a lot of knowledge. Like I wasn't working with clients as much. So and that I think is just a huge thing. And you hear people talk about this. Like a lot of times you just need to be like really dug into a certain industry or something like that. Like you'll hear of some, someone starting this really popular marketing SaaS. And it's like the only way they were able to start that is because they were like in the trenches, you know, doing marketing for 10 years kind of thing. So I think really being in the trenches has helped a lot. And I'm getting to the point now where like, I'll come up with an idea. Like I, used to back in the day, but be like, well, I have no idea where to even start. Now I'm kind of like, okay, I, we can like actually see this through. And I built up a network too. That that's a huge part of it is the people I'm working on these with, they really like compliment where I kind of lack, you know, where like I'll bring the technical side and they'll have like a lot of industry experience and be more like on the sales and marketing side. So just getting those two pieces in place, both on the network and just the knowledge but like the real world knowledge, not just like listening to podcasts, like actual, like, you know, kind of taking some, getting some scars and, and like really learning in the, in the field like that. I can definitely see myself like more, a lot more focused with these products as opposed to just like starting things and seeing if they'll stick. Yeah, I know that's, I think that's a really interesting insight and important to note, right? Like you're, you're seeing problems. So the ideas that you're having the, for products and solutions are actually related to the things that you're seeing day in and day out. And you're seeing that it's the same, whether you're, you know, the butcher down the street or you're, you know, the enterprise client. So you're starting to see where the problems are and it makes sense that you're able to find and get more excited about the, the solutions that you're coming up with these days. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's easier to know what's like maybe infeasible too. Like a lot of times people have an idea that's actually like sounds simple, but it's super technically complex. And there might be another idea that sounds complicated, but it's actually not that hard behind the scenes. So you kind of learn what those look like. So that, that always helps too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mike, my, my focus with the app that I built called Ostrich is focused on personal finance. So I want to kind of transition and, and get your thoughts on, you know, personal finances a little bit. And, and I'm curious how you would describe your relationship with money, especially now as an entrepreneur. Yeah, that, well, that's actually interesting. That was really what I was into before anything else. So I came into college as a finance major. I kind of got into investing even in high school. Like I didn't have a lot of money, you know, but I still just thought like the buying stocks just sounded so cool to me. And like, I learned about Warren Buffett. So I was, I was actually really into that early, just as like a hobby. I always like finance and personal finance. And I think that's just a tremendous skill to have just from what I've just realizing, like how few people even know what APR mean. Like I, I'm actually pretty passionate. Like it should be a mandatory class taught in high schools, like with math and science, like not an elective. I think it's a shame they don't teach that to kids who might be getting ready to take out like a hundred K in debt, you know, and, and they might not understand like what that interest rate on their hundred K debt is. Right. I mean, it's, so anyway, not, not to get like soapboxy there, but yeah, I it took like did finance in college and actually took a, that was more like corporate finance and whatnot, but they had a personal finance elective that I took that it was actually super interesting that just had like all these little things, you know, it dealt with like credit score. It, it really covered just about everything you need to know about all that stuff and was pretty in depth. Like there, there was a lot of stuff that I had never even heard of, even as someone who was like really interested in it. So yeah, that's something that that's definitely always been a, a thing for me. I got into the stocks and investing about that same time too in high school and seen Warren Buffett. And I think Berkshire Hathaway was their B shares were splitting. I think that's, it was, I might, I think it's the only time, but it's the the first time. And I think only time that they were planning on splitting their stock back in 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. Yeah. And I got really into to personal finance and uh, Warren Buffett around that time as well. I think it's a, it's a time where a lot of people that are going to get interested in it tend to that age. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had, you know, I started working in high school. So I like you know, had some money for the first time ever. Again, not like a lot. And back then you had to pay, you know, investing a few hundred dollars at the time. And this is pre like Robin Hood and all that. And you had to pay like 12 buck commissions back then. And with, with like Schwab, which I still use Schwab and they, even they, even the old school guys will have like free commissions now, you know, that, that market's just been like driven down, um, which is good to see. But yeah, back then I, I was paying 12 buck commissions and stuff. And you couldn't buy fractional shares. So like you mentioned with Berkshire, before they had that B share, you needed 200K to, <laughs> yeah, good uh, luck. if you wanted to have Berkshire. Yeah. So uh, I remember when the B share came out, I, I probably like, yeah, I was excited about that, but yeah, it was that de definitely started getting interested in it at the time. I don't know. It's because if I was like making money for the first time or what it was, but I've always been kind of like a numbers guy and I like kind of analyzing things and crunching numbers. What would you say, Mike, is the best investment that you've made? Best investment. I haven't really done any like VC or angel stuff. So you probably have people on the podcast that, you know, I don't know, have like 10,000 X, you know, stories. I, I don't have anything like that. I'd say, you know, I bought Shopify back in the day. They were public. It wasn't like a, any sort of round, but they went public really early. I think they were super small. Like they were like a billion or two back then. So 
that that's been pretty nice there. I mean, they're over hundred billion now, 150 maybe, but that was a good one, I guess, just on my, on the personal side of things, I've gotten a Bitcoin a few years back that that's done pretty well as well. Uh, Shopify has, has done very, very, very well. So that's a good one. And obviously Bitcoin has, is in the news. So uh, everyone, everyone kind of knows where Bitcoin is and if you'd have, you've seen all those, all those little things, if you would have bought it at, in 2010, 2011, 2012, right, yeah. it just keeps going up <laughs> of what it would have looked like. But yeah, um, I didn't get, get in quite that early, but still gotten a little earlier than, than most people, but yeah, not, not at five cents, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. That'd be nice. Mike, we don't always make good decisions. What would you say is the dumbest money mistake that you've made? The dumbest money mistake. You know, to be honest, like I've always been pretty good with money. Like I mentioned, I, it was just something I was into. And I always knew, even when I was taking on debt, which I did take on pretty heavy debt with my businesses, but it was always really calculated. Like I was never overextending. So I don't know if I made like a really bad call. I think with one of my first businesses that was really inventory focused, I did over leverage a little bit just in that things were going up, up and up. And I was like, taking on debt for working in capital. And I, it was an SBA loan. So it was cheap. It was like six and a half percent. And I was just like, this is just free money. Like I'm going to make more than six and a half on this. And I kind of, things were going well. So I, you kind of get into this groove where it's like, you feel like you can just print money. Like every dollar you put into the business, you're going to get three out and it's like never going to stop. And then like anything, you know, there's like a pullback, there's a little correction, the space gets more competitive. And you realize what that, like the downside of that leverage is where like, okay, well now I don't even really need this capital as much, but you know, I'm paying this much interest on it, but it wasn't anything that like wiped me out, but definitely got a little like exuberant. You got to think about things might pull back a little bit. Obviously, I mean, COVID is just a great example of that. Like, you know, there are businesses that went from like a million ARR to zero. If, if you were like a physical business, um, I personally know a lot that did that. So yeah, for the first like 10 years of my career, you know, I was coming out of college when the market was roaring back from the 08 crisis. So really my entire adult life has been in a bull bull market, right? Yeah. So it's tough. Like for a while, business was just going straight up. So it's hard to like learn lessons until the tide comes back in. And this, this was, was this MJ seats or sharp seed or was this a different project? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was both of them really. Okay. Nice. And those ultimately, they were around the event ticket space. So those were pretty much halted by COVID. Luckily, I started Build Lab at the time. But yeah, I mean, the, the like there was no live event for over a year. I mean, those really went to zero. Like it wasn't like a 50% pullback. So you never know. It's a good uh, good lesson there to like diversify and uh, make sure, again, you're always still learning. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great point because uh, you never know when a pandemic or some other event will will take away everything that you've got and you've got to be prepared for that. Mike, this has been a, a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sitting down. I want to leave you with the last word. So if there's anything that you want to share with the audience or anything that uh, I haven't asked yet, that's important to, to know about Build Lab or your experience, please, uh, you've got the floor. And then also let the audience know how they can connect with you outside of this podcast. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I have any like uh, last minute speaking point to give. I think we covered it all. It was cool. We got to talk about personal finance a little bit. I mean, that is something that I'm almost always talking about tech. That is, that's something I'm definitely passionate about. So that's cool. Yeah. Like take care of your finances. If that, maybe that's my one like piece of party <laughs> advice. If 
If you weren't interested in high school and college, invest a little bit of time. It doesn't take that much to like find some course to just break down credit score and all that. In terms of where to find me, buildlab.co, mwilliams.co is my personal site. If you uh, want to reach out there, Twitter, I'm Mike though, T-H-O-U-G-H. Cool. Awesome, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day.